From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Coming to you from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studio. Look it out on the Locust Walk on a December morning. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies and faculty colleagues, longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborator Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Some combination of us are here, we three and Audie Weiner. Audie's out and about doing Audie things today. He'll be back, but some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys could be here too. Give us a shout. The number, one eight four four wharton that's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six, or email us businessradio at siriusxm dot com, or hit us up on Twitter at wmoneyball is our handle on Twitter at wmoneyball. Great way to reach out to us, talk about the world of sports analytics. We follow all of our guests up there. Try to stay on top of that place. You guys can send us questions, suggestions, complaints, whatever you got at wmoneyball on Twitter. We have a regular show in that we have guests at the bottom of this hour and. The top of the next hour, super interesting guests. I, I believe first time guest in both cases, talking to Second Spectrum, talking strength and conditioning, with one of the most lauded, accomplished strength and conditioning coaches in collegiate athletics. At the top of the next hour, looking forward to all that. Between now and then, open lines, guys. What's caught your eye in the world of sports? Well, there's a lot going on in sports actually, but something caught my eye last night, and I was just wondering from a statistical perspective how you could think about it. So I don't know if you guys heard what happened in the um, San Antonio Spurs Houston Rockets game last night. I saw, I saw the cra- crazy video. Okay, but here's the statistical part of it. It's all just for our listeners that didn't know. So about with about 7:40, I think roughly left in the game, the Rockets are up 14 points in the fourth quarter. James Harden goes in for a dunk, makes the dunk. But he slams it so hard that the ball hits off him, goes around the other side of the basket, and the referees just think it didn't go all the way through because it was like so quick and such a violent dunk. So the basket was called no good. Apparently, the coach, Mike D'Antoni, was arguing so long about it that the 30 seconds had elapsed for him to challenge it. He's like, well, what are you talking about? I'm challenging this. They didn't allow him to challenge it. Houston went on to lose the game in double overtime. Now, here's the question. Mike D'Antoni said, well, obviously, we outscored them in regulation. The win should just be given to us because they were tied at the end of regulation if those two points had counted. And the other option is they replay it from that point in the game. Now, I started to wonder, let's take the first one. How much path dependence do we think there is in any sport in basketball? I was just thinking about that because, you know, you say, well, they would have been up 16 instead of 14. They were outscored 14. They still would have won by two. I don't know how anybody could think... Yeah, that is, is an argument that you could go with. You, you can't you can't fault him for making the argument. You can argue that you want to, and it's your, kind of your job as an advocate for your side to make it, but it, it's not a good well, argument. I think, it's, no, no, it's, a ba- it's a straw man argument, well, no, no. certainly, because well, I mean, you- there is so much path dependence that you, you have to know that if they had had that extra two points, things would have gone differently. Well, let's ask you the following question. Let's just think about it from a logic perspective. Let's imagine that play had happened with one half of one second left on the clock. Then you would probably yeah. reasonably give the game. How far back in time, like, if there were, that's it? Like, that's the only instance where, in some sense, you would feel comfortable reversing the decision because there's no future, there's no reverse path dependence. Like, if it was with two seconds left, then no, no, because the other team could have won the game anyway with a three. Or tied it, yeah. 
Yeah, so that no, would I mean, be the only instance where you, you have kind to of grant them the win. You have to kind well, of eliminate the possibility that they could have tied it. Here, here's a here's a I think a reasonably objective way to approach it anyway, and consider the change in win probability. That's what I was going to yeah. ask. Well, so yeah. you see, this is why we've been <laughs> that's why we've been sitting together like brothers for six almost six five and a half years here. I was going to say, why don't you just look at the change in win probability, and maybe the NBA or any sport decides there's a threshold. If it's above, I'll make it up. If the change is more than fifty percent, sixty percent, which would be by the way a massive threshold. Then you're right. You're the winner. Or you're right. We'll replay it. Like, why don't they just set some stati- – I know they're not. But why don't we pretend like they're going to set some statistical criterion for making these decisions? And it, it would need to be really high. But what's your intuition for what the change in win probability was as a result of that call? Intuition. So we're talking about going from – 14 to 16 with 7 minutes and 30 seconds left. Exactly. It's, so but let's oh, begin, let's begin change with – Change of a couple percent, maybe on, at let's, most. Well, let's – yeah, good. So, But let's start with what is the win probability up 14 – with seven minutes left, what do you think? I'm going to guess. I'm just guessing. I'm going to say mid 90s. No, I it think seems lower. A little high. Yeah, I, I, I my just yeah. I, I was thinking like 70 or 75 actually. When no, you okay. So no. the wisdom of crowds with amongst, like seven minutes left or whatever or six. Yeah, minutes? yeah. I think you're too low. Of course I do. I bet in the middle. Yeah. Okay. The wisdom of crowds would say my answer, which is the average 85%. of our three answer. Let's go with 85. Let's just yeah. let's just use that. And then ask, what's the increment if you get another bucket? One or two percent. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, no, I'm saying it's nowhere near the thrust. I was just thinking from a yeah. – it's an interesting question to then start to think about if you're going to set a statistical criterion where – you know, how big an effect size would you need to have? So, Eric, this, this makes me think about a related issue, which is, you know, imagine the relevance to the decision that coaches make to pull players after get, they get their third foul in the first half. They're implicitly saying – a bucket is not a bucket is not a bucket. All buckets are not equal, mm-hmm. which seems on its face wrong. And many people will say that's wrong. Two points is two points, and you know, you, it, it, yeah. But, but it doesn't change win probability in the same way, and that's because there's a million things that can happen. There's variance around what can happen downstream. No, that's right. And I mean, you know, two points is. I mean, two point. You could argue it either way. People do argue it either way. Two points is the same in the fourth quarter as it is in the first quarter, except that it's not in the sense that you are able to condition on a greater amount of knowledge when that two points happens in the fourth quarter. I mean, that then then that two points happening if you're down by like twenty, it doesn't really matter. If you're doesn't up by twenty, right. it doesn't matter. You're right. you're able to kind of it, it. There is sort of a. It depends what you're kind of conditioning on, I think, knowledge-wise and kind of in the game as far as whether that two points is the same importance in the fourth quarter as in the first quarter. Yeah, I would think – look, I would think three things I would want to look at for that particular instance. One is what's the change in win probability. I think we agree whether the base rate's 75 percent or – well, certainly if it's 90-something percent, which I believe, then it's the delta is going to be even smaller yeah. than if it's 75 percent. That's one thing. Second, you'd have to ask yourself, let's imagine this whole – discussion incident took three four five minutes i don't know whatever it took so now you have to have just it's just an empirical question did that change the momentum or did it change the game in some way like was houston like if i had told you houston was on an eight nothing run and that would have made it ten nothing does that change at all your belief about the path dependence? Question number three is, would it have changed the strategy in the game? In other words, would the Spurs have done something? In this case, I don't think it did. 14, 16, they're right, going to change right. the strategy. But you can imagine in general, yeah. let's imagine it's in football. Let's imagine a field goal is actually good, and they call it no good. And in one case, it puts you up 10 points. And in another case, it puts you up 7. You stay up 7, but it's still in the first quarter. 
Well, does the other team change its strategy now that it's down two scores? So I'm just saying, if you think about it, I'm not talking about this situation. I'm saying more generally, if it actually would change the other team's strategy, that could have a secondary effect on win probability. Because now the other team is saying, look, we're down six. And and, and you've kind of pointed to sort of like the main, uh, though we've come a long way as far as kind of simulating, and and all these win probability added sort of models are, I mean, are essentially based on either a simulation or some kind of empirical thing about, like, what happens when you change game states from up th- 7 points to up 10 points. But though none of those models or none of those endeavors factor in any kind of change in strategy from well, that. But well, they, they, they do. I mean, I guess if the empirically empirical, based one may be... Yeah, certainly. Not not, not, impli- not impli- explicitly, I guess. They don't well, it's just explicitly unconditional. build it. It's just unconditional. Like, for all, what are all the possible outcomes if, you know, from this point forward, 14 points yeah. up, seven minutes left, here's the range of things that we've observed in the history of the game or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that considers all possible strategies that are pursued. Yeah, yeah. From it, that point, right. From, from, that, from that, point. that point. It's true. I just, you know, I guess you you wouldn't be able to measure, I guess, from... Using that, it would be hard to kind of pull out any kind of change in strategy based on just this this particular change in In this particular case, but I'm saying in general, you could. Either way, it just caught my eye. It just yeah. caught my eye as an no, interesting topic. No, it is topic. really interesting. I, so I, it's a, it's a, I doubt they're going to win that argument, right? They're not. They're, well, they, what has well, happened before, they have replayed a game before. Not a game, but but the, like the last minute. Seven? Or no, no. This they want the the Houston's asking for one of two things: either give us the win, not going to happen, yeah. or let's replay the game from yeah. seven forty left, and we're up sixteen. So what, and what I'm saying is that has, that happened, has happened before. It's absolutely so it, it's, happened it's before. It's like before. ten years ago or something. But they've they've replayed the end of a game because I think Shaq was fouled out when he wasn't supposed to be fouled out, something like that. But I mean, so let's take that just for a moment. Consider that is that that's just going to be the thing. Is it's just fair it's not it's not that it's going to properly recapture the moment or it's going to give us a true ending of the game that's not what's going to happen it's just that okay this seems like a fair way to deal with the problem you know in no way can you recapture what would have happened by replaying the Mm -hmm. game there's no way so it's not that it's just they want to treat the situation fairly that's that would be their logic if they go that way yeah i mean again if i were the spurs i would be thinking to myself um you know, you've basically taken away point, in my belief, point nine five wins away from us by doing this. I understand it might be, if I believe it's if my numbers right, it's a ninety plus win probability. You're basically an expectation taking away point nine wins from us in a game that we actually won. So, you know, I don't want to simulate a new hypothetical outcome. I saw what the outcome was. I'm with you. I think mm-hmm. the fair mm-hmm. thing to do is to do it. But I could see the Spurs argument the entire other direction. They can both give them wins. Give both teams wins. <laughs> I mean, you know, us statisticians many years down the road will have to deal with the fact that there's one more win in that particular NBA season than there otherwise would be, but they could give could them they both give them a tie? What about tie? Well, that, that that means we have to increase the number of columns and stuff like that. I mean, that's a more dramatic change. I mean, in hockey, that would be the obvious thing. They'd just give them a tie or something like that. And, but, of course, by the way, the game went to two overtime. Yeah. So, you know, Houston had plenty of chances to yeah. win the game. So how do you feel about what's going on with Harden these days? Harden went off the other night, 60 points in well, three quarters. Well, he had 50 quarters. last night. Yeah. So that's, look at the highlights from the game last night, and you're blown away by Harden, what Harden did. But then you look at the stats. I'm not blown away. And it looks Ivern. I, Iverson-esque in, in, in terms of how the volume that he's using to get those numbers, right? Yeah, I don't think... I mean, I think last night, I think I have the number right. I mean, he might have taken something like 38 shots to get to score 50 points. I think it was 38. But he also... He was 24 of 24 from the that, foul yes. line. See, this is the thing. The guy... 
This is why his... I think it's a record, by the way. It is. That's why his efficiency rating is as high as it is, because he's a great free-throw shooter, and he gets fouled more than any... Well, he claims he does even more than he goes to the line, but he gets fouled more than anybody (laughs) in the NBA. So even though he's launching tons of shots and his field goal percentage may be in the low 40s, if you add on the points created by free throws, he's actually a fairly efficient player. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. again, if you just do the ratio, he scored – let's say I'm right and he took 38 shots. I think that was roughly right. He's 11 of 38. Okay, so he's scoring 1.3 points roughly per shot taken last night. 50 points in 38 shots. That's mm-hmm. 1.3. Mm-hmm. That's not bad. Mm-hmm. So that that if you watch if, if you just watch the highlights, it even looks better because he is so fun to watch, and he does it in so many different ways. I mean, he does it from way outside. He does it getting to the hoop. He does it with graceful little things around. He does it with these these dunks. I mean, he's a lot of fun to watch if you only watch the highlights. I'm not sure how much fun it is to watch this kind of play. But they're also- and, and I'm curious, Eric. The, yeah. the how's it working out with? I mean, the way we're describing Harden is not unlike the way we would describe. Westbrook and these guys are on the same team. How mm-hmm. is it working out to have these guys? I know they wanted to play together, but how is it working? They're they're playing reasonably well as a team, but do we think this is working as a as a scheme? Well, what you're going to have to ask Russell Westbrook is is he happy with in some sense, you know, having let's call it a third less production? Yeah. Because if you just look at his number of shots, they're way down. If you look at his assists, they're way down because Bar- Harden's a ball-dominant kind of player. If you look at his everything, it's his stats are way down. So this is always the question is when you have two superstars, and I think we all agree they're both superstars, is one of them willing to be player 1A to the other player 1? That's the question. That's always the question when you have, especially, they're not complementary in the sense of like Shaq and Kobe was. Like, you know, Kobe would have the ball in his hands at the end of the game, and Shaq might get it down low. But these are two guards. Yeah. These are two players that both are used to having the ball in their hands. So that's the question. Is it going to work out? It's just a matter of whether... No, and I I mean, I I always think about like kind of like come playoff time, because that's really what we're sort of, you know, they're, they're oriented towards, obviously, with kind of their team building. Um you know, if 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 you kind of are approaching the Houston Rossics and you kind of take this sort of like Bill Belichick strategy to trying to defense them, you want to take away their biggest weapon. And, you know, let's assume you're successful at that. Is a team not advantaged by having kind of two superstars that essentially do kind of sub in for each other? You take away Harden and Westbrook basically gives you the same thing. As opposed to uh, two players where they complement each other, but they kind of need that interaction effect to happen, somehow you would think that kind of interaction effect between two players, as opposed to just a straight-up substitution effect between two players, would be that interaction would be more sensitive to taking away one of their big weapons. Well, again, I think you've brought up a point. Matter of fact, I'm pretty sure we've never talked about that here on Wharton Moneyball, which is, would you like to have two stars? Well, if you just think about it mathematically... You might say you'd rather have two players that are complement because, you know, by definition, I get the strength of A, the strength of B, and then I get this interaction mm-hmm. term AB. That's what we mean by complements. If substitutes, I get A or B, yeah. not A and B. So you would think in the long run, 
You'd rather have two players that are complements of each other by the definition of yeah. what complements mean. But I could easily see the argument at the end of the game, you know, Harden's having a bad game and I need somebody with the ball in their hands. And you know what? It's not going to be Shaq. Shaq's yeah. not coming up the court with the ball. But if I had Kobe <laughs> and somebody else, if I had Westbrook and Harden, I've got two options at the end of the game. Yeah. I'm still going for compliments, but I could see I, I the argument I, I, for the I end mean, of the I game. I mean, I think you're right, but, uh, but uh, you know, you could certainly there's an argument to be made why having two kind of basically substitutable stars on one team is not a bad idea. Well, d- it'd be fun to talk about this with Daryl Morey. Having had, you know, Chris Paul and, and Harden on the same team last year, having Harden right. and Westbrook this right. year, Harden is kind of the, the convex combination of Westbrook and Chris Paul. They're they're thirteen seven right now. They're fifth in the West. But interestingly, and I don't I don't it's, this is a little hard to make sense of five thirty eight's projections, five thirty eight's power rankings. Remember they've revised their model. This is a Raptor model they have now has the Rockets the second best team in the league with the highest likelihood of making the finals out of the West. And the Lakers are way down there. You know. Five percent chance of making the finals. I don't uh, quite understand where. I this mean, is coming the, the from. team I keep talking about, uh, keep thinking about, is also the Clippers. Now, what's interesting about the Clippers this year? You know, I was trying to. I had another general problem I wanted to talk about. I've asked you this about also. Yeah, so I was just thinking about the Clippers as well, and I was thinking they seem to be a pretty damn good team too. Yeah, I mean, L A L A. This is a fun, a fun little thing that's emerged in the NBA over the last twelve months. Obviously, and both teams are hitting it really well right now. It's. I mean, I hope the Rockets can be. I hope the Rockets can compete with those guys. But I, 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 we need. To, we need to get the the five thirty eight folks to come in and talk about their their rap tomorrow. By the way, we have a. Let this is five thirty eight. This is not five thirty eight. I'm talking about five thirty eight. Wharton Moneyball. You guys can give us a shout or hit us up on Twitter at W Moneyball is the handle up there. Phone number is one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Cade. Shane and Eric in here this morning. We have a phone call. Mike from Alabama, good college football country. Mike, what do you got this morning? Well, you always want to call, talk college football, but I was going to talk about NBA since you're on it. Um, Adam Silver put out a proposal for a shortened NBA season, and then the NFL has always talked about lengthening the season. I was wondering how that would affect models and analytics. Baseball's always been uh, against changing the season and maybe Audie could tell us why but because of stats were so important in baseball but I was just wondering what models would how they'd have to change uh, with shortened seasons or longer seasons. Well the great question we'll take it up just to one clarification are you thinking more about players individually or are you talking about teams and, and like outcomes for the season? Yeah so one of the things I was thinking somebody like LeBron his efficiency rating would seem to go way up in a shorter season um, but whereas uh, a younger player's value would seem to be better over a longer season, but maybe you know load management has taken that completely out anyway. But um, and then in, in baseball, you know, if you have a shorter season, uh, a pitcher's effectiveness might be way up there, especially if he was a hard thrower versus a finesse pitcher during a longer season. Yeah, terrific. And that would change models and salaries if those seasons were shorter or longer and how much work the analysts would have to put in to rectify this so they would have an accurate model. Right, right. Interesting, Mike. Appreciate it. Appreciate the call. Mike from Alabama. So, fellas, thoughts on that? My my, my you know, my first thought is at the team level that it changes the the separation of the good teams from the average teams. I mean, and, and we, know, we know that, you know, 
ba- baseball would have to be hundreds of games longer yeah, in yeah. order to actually separate because there's so much chance in the sport. NBA is the opposite has the opposite problem that they need they actually need to play a shorter season to introduce a little more randomness to it is my is my understanding. Um, but but Mike brings up this issue of of the differential effect on different kinds of players, which is kind of yeah no, and I mean you know it, I, it's I mean the most obvious kind of thing would be, and I assume the intent to the shortened season would be kind of that there would be less of this load management dynamic that happens in the NBA where you don't have the best players playing on their teams for as much as of, of the regular season as you would in a shortened version, and so it's kind of interesting you you. As far as kind of like taking the teams, what, you know, if, if your model is about which teams are good and which teams are going to win in the playoffs and trying to infer from the regular season performance, I feel like you could almost argue either way on where, how that, that would go because you would have less data on the surface, right? You'd have less games upon which to base your inference, but those games would perhaps be more representative those yeah, regular season NBA games would be particular. more okay. representative so of the teams you'd that's see in the playoffs because you wouldn't have that load management dynamic where LeBron rests like for half this game. It's a stuff. very interesting question. Yeah. I, I love the way you framed it from a statistical point of view. In some sense, your sample size goes down, but in some ways you'd argue your measurement error goes down as yeah. well. Yeah. And so <laughs> I think, ne- I, just my gut feeling, by the way, let's with what Mike is talking about, let's, see, let's hear what, let me just tell you what Adam Silver's actual proposal has been roughly. Right now they play 82 games. He's thinking about shorting it to 78. So why would he do that? Well, we talked about this a little bit last week on Moneyball. He wants to introduce like a soccer-style tournament with knockout rounds, and there would be some like intermediate prize for some winner. Like he's enamored by what soccer does when they have these tournaments in the middle of like the season. Like you know, you're in the English Premier League, but you go play some tournament in the middle of the season, and then you win this prize for some tournament you didn't win the english premier league yeah you didn't win the nba finals but you won the nba mid-season championship prize so you have a 32 team knockout round type of thing and that would add five or six games and doesn't want to add five games to the nba schedule it's going to reduce the nba schedule and add this extra tournament that's literally what he's thinking of doing. <laughs> How is that? So I think that sounds great yeah, it sounds the season, awesome actually. the season's yeah. ridiculous as it is yeah how has it been received I think it's I think people have been intrigued by the possibility of it. I think number 1, I think fans would like it having something where I may I make this up. You know, you're right. The Nets are not winning the NBA title, but in a five-game tournament, could the Nets win a five-game tournament with, you know, round robin and a knockout round where it's one game? It's not yeah. best of 7? Sure they could. And you you've added randomness to this shorter tournament. I think that's good. And if it led Shane to what you're suggesting, which is that the other 78 games, the real games in quotes, are actually now you're going to actually see the real players playing at their because they don't have to strategize. Yeah, though, saying- with this with this extra March Madness thing in, it's probably not going to a if you're only shortening the season by like four games and you're basically inserting Adding those back. four games back in in some tournament style where all the best players would presumably be compelled to play. You're not really then going to be moving the needle on that load management thing, right? I mean, they're basically if, if anything that probably will you know, increase the load. Can we talk a little bit about load management and, and especially with this proposal? So setting aside the midseason tournament thing, I mean, if they reduce the season from by four games, is that going to change? Do you, do you really think it's going to change the, the, as you say, the, the diagnosticity of the signal, signal of a game or are they, are they going to reduce playing time? Are they going to change the way they're managing their players? No, load? not at that. I, I, don't, th- I don't think with four games. The only, th- the only, here's the only question I have. How many back-to-back games 
do players are there in the schedule? Because if you told me by reducing it four games, there would be no back-to-back games, mm-hmm. right. then yeah. all of a sudden I would say there probably okay. would be some effect. Yeah. I, if I had yeah, to guess, I'm guessing, I would say roughly once a month of a six-month season, teams have a back-to-back game. I'm just guessing. It would not surprise me if a team had half a dozen back-to-back games, and if you were able to reduce the schedule by four or five games, or the other opposite is lengthen the season by a week or two so that there were no back-to-back games, I think that Actually, would have really, an really interesting point. It's kind of an operations point. It's also kind of a sports science point because these things are almost certainly not linear, right? It's these moments of convexity that are the right. real problem where you stack up load back-to-back and all of a sudden you have real problems. They want to avoid that. So it's an, that's a terrific answer to my question that I would not have anticipated. It's like, yeah, because, because the sports scientists probably – worry about this convexity a little bit of relief could mm-hmm. make a big difference yeah. Could make a huge difference by the way so i asked about how this thing was received daryl morey tweeted a few days ago what he's quoted as the executive summary of responses to this proposal and uh it's entertaining we'll retweet it. it's like it's a it's a it's a garth it's uh what are these guys names from, from wayne's world yeah, garth from a, wayne's it's, world it's wayne's world clip about fearing change so morey is obviously in support but he's worried about the inertia of NBA uh, governance. I had a bunch of NBA stuff. If you guys want to stay on the NBA, I had a bunch of NBA stuff that caught my eye also. Just quickly, how much – maybe you could answer this for football too, Kate, since obviously the Massey Peabody system. Suppose I told you a team was 18-6 and six in the NBA right now. You'd say that's, that's really, really impressive, right? Mm-hmm. That's a very good record. That's 75%. But suppose I told you the team was 13-1 and one at home and 3-5 and five on the road. So I'm just wondering, is there any diagnosticity in, let's call it the differential, between home and road winning percentage? And by the way, the team I'm talking about right now is the L.A. Clippers. The Clippers are 13-1 and one at home, 3-5 and five on the road. Forget that they've played 14 home games and only 8 road games. Let's contrast that with the Lakers. The Lakers are 9-2 and two at home and 9-1 and one on the road. The Sixers right now are 10-0 and oh at home, but 5-6 and six on the road. So is there is there anything other than the wins in the games that models that you've built over the years have seen? Like, is there something about having balance in your road versus home schedule? Like, for example, I just checked quickly in the NFL. There are seven teams in the NFL right now that have better road records than home records. Let me just say they are. Buffalo, Kansas City, Tampa Bay, Carolina, Atlanta, Seattle, and the Rams. So is there anything to say about, like, let's say somebody went into the NFL playoffs, 8-0 at home, 3-5 and on the road, 11-5. and Would you rather have them be 6-2 and and 6-3, and or do you don't care whatsoever? So I, I think it's a reasonable question. So I, that I, 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 I'm in the question <laughs> business. I don't have an answer. It's just a question. I, I, and I, and, um, and I've, as far as I've never looked at it, I've never talked about it with Rufus. Rufus has looked at a lot of variations. So he might have, but I kind of doubt it. My main reaction is we're talking about really small samples, and we don't want to we don't want to tell stories about small samples. That's my main reaction. I mean, even at the end of a NFL season, you've got eight games in each bin, and how no, much I, I mean, is there I, really? At the end of the NFL season, I'm more compelled by it than halfway through the NFL season, just because the NFL season is so imbalanced. And it sounds like the NBA season is is as imbalanced, really. You know, at, the, at the, certainly at this juncture. But let's right? even say at the end of the end of the season. Let's say right now, I tell you that the Clippers will be a 90 percent team at home, which is not impossible. 80 to 90 percent at home, but 40 to 50 percent on the road. Would that concern you at all, or would you rather? I mean, I'm just saying from a strength perspective. If 
I told you they were 70%, 70%, if I equi- equalize yeah, the number 70, of wins. 70, 70, or, or, or 90, 50. Right. What you, what's your preference? And I what, would, So what's the theory? What's the theory? What, 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 tell, tell me some story why you'd prefer one of those over the other. I might prefer the ones that's more balanced, given that they're going to be playing an equal number of games on the road versus at home in the playoffs, right? Okay. Although why, by why construction. They, so that seems... That unless they have home court advantage, right? But well, um, you, okay, a, a, almost equal number. Uh, well, but but why would a team have such different abilities? Mostly, I'll just, mostly I'll, my position is these are these are false differences. They're I'll, not actually different. I'll tell you the narrative that they give. That's all the yeah, time. Let's, let's hear that. The narrative is it's not. Let's take the Clippers as an example. It's not that Kawhi Leonard or Paul George plays differently home and road. It's the Montrose Harrells, it's the Lou Williams. I'm just saying the narrative. Bench players, secondary players, don't have as much. I'm telling you the narrative. But don't every, have as much. Every, I'm just telling you the narrative. Every, you asked every, me for the narrative. I'm, I didn't ask you for the statistical <laughs> argument. You asked me for the narrative. Yeah. Eric, Eric, I'm critiquing the narrative, not you. The, the, every team has bench players. Why would one set one, one team set of bench players? A particularly players, noisy arena that influences the refs. More than other places. Okay, here's something. I mean, no, certain places like not, Boston not, Garden or whatever are historically not, tough to play in for that, away but, teams. But, that's, but this is not true. It turns out this isn't wow, true. At okay. least in the NFL, and I suspect it's the same in the NBA. This we tell stories about home court advantage as well, and there isn't. Yeah. There is not persistent home uh, field advantage. Whenever the Seahawks have this dominant home field advantage, turns out they're just good. It's not because Seattle's a particularly place tough. Play. Turns out when they're five hundred. Seattle's not so tough to play in. Mm-hmm. And I think it's probably the same way with the Celtics. Let me also comment, probably, just I'm going to get back to this point, but just to let you know, Seattle's undefeated on the road this year, and they're 4-2 at home. <laughs> but let me ignore that for a second. Um, here's the narrative from a statistical argument. Notice what I did. I didn't sh- tell you all the teams. I self-selected on teams that have a good object or observed performance at home. So let's talk about the bias that introduces so the Clippers, I said, you know, why did I pick the Clippers? Because they're thirteen and one at home. But maybe their true strength at home isn't really thirteen and one. Well, maybe it's not. no, no, we know it's not. So maybe what I'm doing by self-selecting mm-hmm. on an outcome measure, I'm basically saying there's a mean. I mean, the other side isn't as imbalanced as it is because they're truly not a ninety-three percent team at home, and therefore this three and five on the road, which is a small sample, yeah, that's different than ninety-three percent. But their true home winning percentage might be eighty percent. So in some sense, you could argue it's just an artifact of the self-selection of the way in which I mm. present. Yeah, you and the I, data. I mean, like, I find it tough, though. I mean, I find it tough to create a narrative in the NBA. I don't find it tough to create this same narrative for like why, why you might prefer a, a, an imbalance or something like that. In the NFL, right? I mean, the New England Patriots win a lot at Foxborough, in part because the New England Patriots are very good. But they also play playoff games in the wintertime, yeah. and they're outdoors, and the New England Patriots are more used to doing that. So a yeah. really good home record is, I think, well, indicative of future success um, in the NFL. Well, we've got in, a lot. In, in, yeah. in, in some environments. In, in some in environments. In idiosyncratic environments, that yep. seems reasonable. I mean, take but for I mean, example. I, to a certain extent, the NFL, by playing its game outdoors, induces a lot of idiosyncratic environments, yeah, not, like Green Bay good. or New England well, or Miami. That's what Roger said after the game last weekend. Yeah. They came into New York and, 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 and beat the Giants in the snow. And it's like, well, it was Green Bay weather. We got lucky with the, snow, with the weather. Yeah, no, got, otherwise they really would have had a tough time with those New York Giants. <laughs> well, in the last half hour, I got a lot of Patriots stuff to talk about. So we'll get to that yeah. in the last half hour. All right, fellas. That's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball 
on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Eric Bradlow, professor in marketing. Shane Jensen, professor in statistics. Adi Weiner is out and about. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You guys can join us. Give us a shout. one 844 Wharton. That's one 942 7866 or email us com, or hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyBall is our handle up there at WMoneyBall good way to reach out to us in this half hour delighted to welcome to the show Mike Doria Mike is the Vice President of Business Development in charge of sports performance at Second Spectrum you may have heard of Second Spectrum they've been They've been a very important player in the world of sports analytics over the last few years. Immersed as one of the biggest players, actually. And one of the reasons we want to have them on here is to figure out exactly what it is they do. It's kind of confusing to most of the world. So, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks. Uh, uh, great to be here. Uh, glad, to, glad to be on with you this morning. Well, we appreciate you making the time. We talked years ago, like in maybe our first year or something, maybe five plus years ago, with your founder, Rajiv, um, about Second Spectrum. But we wanted to get you back on here because you guys are playing such a central role in data analytics and sports analytics these days. Um, but first, let's get a little, a little bit about you and your background and how you got into this business and how long you've been with Second Spectrum and what exactly your responsibilities are there. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess, you know, I've been a, a huge sports fan and a, and a kind of tech geek for, for as long as I can remember. I spent the, the better part of my first uh, 25 years you know, uh, on a basketball court, uh, or in gyms. And I ended up playing basketball at MIT for four years. And so as it, as it turns out, Hold on, basketball happened, at MIT, what is, what, what does that look like? Is that division three? Is that like university of Chicago, wash U kind of stuff? Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. Division three. So, you know, probably it's fair to say that academics takes the priority over athletics at MIT most of the time. But I mean, over the years, their, their program has actually, uh, has actually come up and, uh, and become a, a much more significant player. Is that um, right? So I had a, I had a buddy, a PhD classmate who played basketball. He, he can one up you on this. He played basketball at Caltech, which I think <laughs> well, one of the giants of the statistics department theater. at uh, Wharton, Larry Brown, uh, who passed away recently, also played basketball at Caltech. Actually. Yeah, <laughs> wow. yeah. Okay, okay. You've got good good company here, Mike. Good company. That's right. It turns out those places become great great recruiting pipelines for us. As as you know, really having a passion for sports and and um, and kind of a, a knack for technology are the are the perfect skill set that yep. we uh, that we end up looking for. But. Yep. Um, you know, I spent some time in consulting and, and kind of managing public school systems, which probably on the surface seemed pretty disconnected. But um, there is probably some through line there of, uh, you know, I think we, we uh, at Second Spectrum, we really think about using data to help improve people's lives. And I think that that was probably true everywhere. Um, and so, yeah, now I, I head up our business development team here at Second Spectrum. I've been with the company um, about five years, I believe now. Um, and, uh, and, and then kind of manage all our interactions with the teams uh, and the folks that we work with. So tell us a little bit more about Second Spectrum itself. How many employees and where are you guys located? 
Yeah, so we are uh, north of 100 employees now, uh, north of 100 full-time folks. We're, we're headquartered in L.A. Uh, we have offices in New York, where I sit now, and uh, Manchester and Luzon, Switzerland, and, and in Shanghai. And so we've, we've expanded quite a bit. Most of our work ends up being in, um, in the U.S. and in Europe, so I kind of straddle that here in, here in New York uh, with the ability to go back and forth. Um, and, you know, really, we're a company that is trying to use cutting-edge technology to change the way that sports are you know played coached and and experienced by fans so let's Um, let's make let's talk about what it is precisely so we think of you as 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 first and foremost as being involved in in motion tracking and and mm -hmm. the kind of revolution in some of the sports basketball certainly soccer's coming football's coming now even baseball uses this some, but let's let's just stay with one sport for a second, just to understand exactly what role you're playing. So, motion tracking in basketball, for example. So we now know where everybody is multiple times every second, where the ball is, and this has led to great changes in the way we analyze basketball. But so there's there are cameras. I, we know we know kind of the beginning point and the end point, and not a lot about what happens in the middle, which is yep. I believe where you guys are involved. So we know that there are cameras in the stadium tracking players and the ball. And then we know that if we're watching the game, we might be shown a picture of a, of a like a thirty eight percent win uh, make probability of a position, or and we know that teams get information from these cameras and they can use it. That's about it. So how does it happen? How does it go from camera to team or from camera to television producer? Yeah, I'll tr- I'll try to give you the overview and, and cut me off if I go too deep here, but. So, yeah, we, we build what's called computer vision systems. So we have camera arrays that are in every NBA arena, um, in every English Premier League stadium. And, you know, we'll be kind of putting these more and more places. And they're tracking players and ball 25 times a second and uh, giving you a, a really precise X, Y or X, Y, Z coordinate. Um, so that's a huge amount of data for an individual game, let alone a season. And so, you know, what we've always kind of known at Second Spectrum is data on its own is not valuable. Uh, I think that, you know, in sports and, and probably everywhere today, we, we're feeling that more and more. And so really core to our work is to use technologies like machine learning to take all that kind of coordinate data and turn it into the language of the game and really try to build capabilities that can change the way people play and experience sports. So you can think of it as, you know, if there's a LeBron Anthony Davis pick and roll from the wing, you can look at that as a set of coordinates of, you know, two offensive players, two defenders and the ball. And our system can automatically recognize not only that it's a pick and roll, but you know, the way the, the very specifically the way that defense is going to defend that, you know, what the ball handler and the screener are going to do, what the outcome is, is the weak side man going to tag a, a rolling Anthony Davis and, and really put this kind of huge amount of data into the language of sports or the language of coaches and, um, you know, once you have all that information, there's a tremendous amount of things you can do with it. You can build systems that let coaches and people at the team basically ask any question about the game and get a video for uh, get a get an answer and data visualizations and video in you know, uh, just a few clicks. Or you can do things to augment the broadcast, which I think was kind of what you were talking about there. So, so we can kind of look across this wealth of information that we have. And in real time, we can automatically draw or augment on uh, on the broadcast to kind of make it context- more contextualized or personalized to, to a fan. So if I want to know what, it's, know what the coach is drawing up in the huddle, well, while that play is evolving, we can draw that on the court so you can kind of see the, the actions that they're doing. 
we can put that shot probability above a player's head so that you can kind of watch and, and understand how the numbers and probabilities are changing throughout the game. Or you can just do some fun stuff too. You can, you know, have uh, lightning bolts and fireballs explode every time somebody dunks the ball. And so, you know, we really think this kind of this, this data and this new set of information is, is going to be transformative for, for, you know, not only coaching and, and kind of the strategic part of the game, but for the fan side as well. We're talking to Mike Daria. Mike is the VP of Business Development for Second Spectrum. Second Spectrum is the provider of data and analytics, um, especially in the NBA and the Premier League, English Premier League soccer. Let's understand a little bit more, though, about just the fundamentals here, because you're talking about providing a number of different services. One, you're, you own the cameras and you collect the data. Is that right? So the raw data, Second Spectrum is responsible for the raw data? That's right. That's right. We put our camera systems in every in every stadium okay. or arena where we work. And so we produce that, you know, generally on behalf of the league and the teams. OK. And then you 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 all you're going to do some processing. And so you, you, you provide provide, you know, you aggregate, you analyze, you provide some finishing touches even. But those are ever higher levels of analysis, I suppose. But I, I you're you're selling. You're selling this. To, how does it work? You sell the league. You sell the teams. You sell the production companies. I mean, what, where, where, what are you between? You're between the That's cameras right. and who? Yeah, and it's generally, you know, it, it can be a little bit different for each contact. But generally, you know, um, uh, with the leagues that we work with, we'll we'll kind of have an agreement with them to provide this tracking data, right? So that is going to include things like you know putting our system in every arena and providing that X Y X Y Z really granular data. Um, and, you know, then what we can do is work with teams individually uh, to go and, you know, provide them software tools that help them interpret that data, as well as this kind of machine learning later that, that, that translates that data into, again, a language that, you know, the, the coaches are used to using. Yeah. Um, but that's an individual can, thing, Mike. That's 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 something that you're doing. Individually yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind clubs. of envisioning that you guys like going from like the very raw data, which is your video feed to you know, these really sophisticated, you know, probabilities that you can kind of put in a telecast. There's many, many layers of analysis involved there, and it sounds like you kind of have different customers for whatever layer. So so the NBA is the customer for the bottom layer, the raw data, and maybe it's something on top of that. But then you might go in and do something with the Bucks or the Raptors for – higher level processing and espn would probably be one of the highest layers where you'd just be giving them sort of win probabilities or what or or shot probabilities or something like that that they can kind of literally layer on top of the broadcast are we thinking about this right yep that's exactly right you know we we generally get our start working with teams um just because we find they're kind of closest to the action they they generally have the highest and most exacting standards so if we can create a set of information that's valuable enough that a hedge coach is going to use it to make a decision in an nba finals game or someone in the front office is going to use a use this information to execute a trade or or, you know something in free agency you know it gives us a uh, well we both get really proud of that but it gives us a great deal of confidence in what we're doing and yep. and then and then we can kind of go on to serve these other these other cohorts as well okay mike let's flip it around and ask just we're trying to understand the market so you're you're the perfect player to to understand the market with if we're a team uh wh- what are my choices so i i want i want to get the best data possible and um i don't let me just consider all the ways i can get that i can just get something from the nba you've given them raw data they're going to get, they're going to pipe it out to all 30 teams in some form presumably or i could do that and or i can do that i can i can deal with you i can you can do some processing for me you could do some analytics for me is that right what 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 alternatives do i have as a team and what do you see teams doing i'm sure teams go about this in different ways 
Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, like first and foremost, like through our relationship with the NBA, every team gets you know a base layer of data as well as some software tools to to work with that. And then you know each team is is always free to I think work with as many other providers as they see are going to add them value. And so we we think that you know of course you know this is a maybe me being biased, but we think we can provide the most value on top of that to help interpret that data that they get from the league, provide more software tools, provide more services. But certainly there is no shortage of players in the market right now who are kind of out there trying to provide data, video, you know, software solutions to teams. Um, as I'm sure you guys know, it's such a competitive space that, uh, you know, everyone's trying to get um, uh, a little advantage over, over everybody else. But Do, um, do, do people have equal access to the base layer? So, yeah, that's 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 right. So every team in the league gets access to data from you know every NBA game that's played across you know whether it's their own game or somebody else's, and so it gives this really nice foundational set um, to both do kind of you know you can kind of think of it as self analysis, but also league analysis or right. opponent analysis as well. And Mike, does that you 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 obviously have access to those data because y'all produced it. What about your competitors? So do they have to get it from the team or do other or, or do they get it or can they buy it from the league? Is there any other way to get the access other than to work with the team as your competition and say, well, if you'll give me the data, I'll do analysis? Yeah, the primary way right now is to get it through teams um, and some of the league's core media partners, as you've seen this probably either on air or, you know, in, in the digital space. I think, you know, some of the some of the core uh, media partners of the league get access to some of this as well. Right. Um, and, you know, I think there may be a time where there where this data is, is kind of uh, gets out there more broadly. But I think we will continue to work with the league on that. I mean, they're ultimately we, we are partners of the league and the teams and we are, uh, you know, always want to be cautious of kind of what their preference are and uh, and kind of serve them as best as we can and so we'll kind of continue that uh, that that exploration with them over time yeah because that's that's a super interesting question right I hadn't even thought about it and it's just this is why we had you on so that leagues who enter these agreements and everybody has one now there's a, a one of the first questions they have to ask is who has access to these data the the raw data the initial data so are you as a as a camera raw data provider or do you have a privileged position for these data right? Or do you just you sell that to the league and then and it's a, that's a different deal? And presumably you would need to be compensated more if you aren't able to get it somewhere else. You know, it's a super interesting, super interesting challenge. Can you? T- t- there's two other l- angles we're really kind of interested in. One is okay, we've been talking about ba- basketball, but what other sports? And then two, we want to eventually get to this modeling question because that's kind of that's kind of our corner of the world. How do you yeah. come up with these shot probabilities and how? How, where's the frontier on that? Because it's we we know numbers well enough to know that that thirty eight percent isn't an objective fact. You know, this is a mm-hmm. it's a modeling output. But first, let's understand the. I mean, we're highly sympathetic. By the way, we love the fact that you've got a number on it. <laughs> um, but first, give us a little bit of the landscape on where the different how the different sports are looking. I mean, where's hockey on this? Yeah, I, I was actually going to ask you about hockey specifically because I've, I've I've I'm a fan of hockey myself, and I kind of feel like hockey has lagged behind a lot of these other sports in terms of the how much video tracking technology has kind of made inroads. And I, if you could kind of talk about whether that's like a technological barrier or whether it's just kind of a cultural barrier within the league where they're somehow a little bit less open to this type of new technology. Yeah, it's a really good question. And I mean, I think, you know, we, we our perspective is we're still kind of in the early innings of, of all this stuff and that there's going to be a lot more growth and proliferation of this type of technology. I think 
as you go sport to sport, there are kind of differences in the way games are played that make different technologies more or less suitable, right? Baseball is obviously a game that kind of is, is, is split up a lot more and has a lot less movement amongst the players, but this kind of pitcher-batter relationship is super important. And so, you know, you might have one technology that works there. Presently, we focus mainly on basketball and soccer or football, depending on where, which, which, uh, which side of the pond you're on. And um, because we think both those sports lend themselves um, really well to our technology stack. But, you know, I think both the leagues and, and teams we work there have been really progressive in, in kind of their approach and, and what they and kind of have a shared vision. Um, I'm sure you guys know in the NFL, there's, a, there's, there's chips in every player's shoulders pads that kind of pro, pro, uh, that produce a, a similar kind of ground or foundational data set. And, you know, because of, I think, the physical nature of the game and, uh, and, and some of those other factors, that is a solution that they decided to go with. So let me and just I underscore think- real quickly, that's different from computer vision. So computer vision, you guys just have cameras. You're watching it and interpreting it in some ways. And in football, it's chips. And you're saying that's not an accident. That's because the 22 guys in kind of a scrum down there, harder to do with a camera, you need the chip. Yeah, exactly. So, like, our camera system... Uh, is going to look down at the at the court or the field. It's going to identify the the jersey number and the jersey color to figure out exactly who the player is, and it's going to really track uh, precisely track them, you know, uh, across every moment of the game. And so, you know, while there's pro- well, well, we believe I think there's applications for you know uh, computer vision in in football as well. Uh, I think chips is another really viable solution, which at the end of the day produces a similar data set. And so, you know, I I know there's been some announcements from the NHL about. Uh, looking into both of these technologies as well, and so you know, I can't speak specifically to um, to kind of what what their thought process is, other than what I've, uh, I've read publicly. But um, I think in our in our kind of view of the world, you know, we're going to see again this technology kind of proliferate most sports, and I think you know we. Again, from a biased perspective, we, we feel really bullish about the computer vision side of it. I think the ability to not have to kind of put a device right. on a player or on the ball just has a lot of advantages. And, you know, certainly every technology has its advantages and disadvantages, but especially as computer vision technology evolves, which we have seen it do dramatically, even over the course of time that, um, that, that we've been working in this space, I think not only are you going to get more and more accurate data from even sports that have a lot of contact or pileups, but you can kind of think about a world where the granularity of the data increases as well, right? Where maybe you are no longer just getting a, a kind of specific coordinate for a player, but you're starting to build out a model of the, of, of kind of, um, you know, the, the human skeleton or, or, or player movement in a, in a kind of more nuanced way. Interesting. So what do you think is the next great frontier for second spectrum? Is it better data, better math, or better usage by teams? Which would advance your business model the most? And by the way, I asked this question, Eric Brother, Mike, I asked this question of everybody. Is, would you rather have better data, better math, or better clients? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it, it's, a, it's a really good question. You know, I, 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 uh, He's in business development. He wants clients, his clients. <laughs> I know, but if he had better data and math, he might get better clients. So I'm just trying to figure out which one. So I, I would probably answer that two ways. I think we will see uh, in the near future uh, more, more and more data, which I think will then um, power everything downstream, right? So that kind of foundational data piece is still, you know, is still uh, the foundation of, of kind of everything that we build on top of it. And so it just will open up um, basically more modeling, more, more kind of things we can extract from the data, and then ultimately better things we can serve our clients with. Um, I also think we will start to see this more and more in a kind of broadcast and fan-facing world as well. 
Um, you know, we have, uh, again, we've worked with a lot of the partners in the NBA there. We will be doing that in the soccer world as well. And I think this ability to kind of, again, personalize and contextualize things in a different way is it's very obvious and immediate for, for sports teams and leagues. And I think, um, I think fans and, and kind of uh, media companies will, will start to kind of desire that more and more as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Listen, Mike, we appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. Um, it's super interesting what you guys are doing, and it affects what we can do, what we watch. It affects teams we work with, and so we really wish you the best with everything you got going on. Yeah, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, we're big fans of the show as well. Wonderful. All right, thank you. Mike Doria, Vice President of Business Development at Second Spectrum. He's in charge of sports performance. Second Spectrum, the official video tracking technology provider for the NBA since two years ago, the 2017-2018 season. They're also working with other leagues, notably the English Premier League in soccer. Mike Doria. Guys, real quickly, we have about a minute. Any reactions to that? I just think it'll be interesting to see which one becomes the dominant paradigm, which is, let's call it, chip-based type of tracking versus video-based tracking. I see the advantage of, as Mike was describing, not having to put a device inside of something. And as visual technology and artificial intelligence improve, that seems like it's going to be scalable and doable. Yeah, I think it will be computer vision. It's very compelling to kind of talk about, you know, again, coming back to hockey, one of the challenges that hasn't been overcome is, you know, how to quantify somebody's reach with their stick and, like, where, you know, where their actual hands are versus legs is going to be important to, like, kind of the finer grain study of of every sport. And computer vision is really the only way you're going to be able to do that. Yeah, the chip where your torso is provides some information, but it doesn't provide all the information that you might want to know. If that's true, the real where a quarterback's eyes are going. Imagine that world. We <laughs> well, can actually sort of well, see what happen, the quarterback right? still happens. Yeah. As, as hardware gets better, yeah. but also as software gets better, and mm-hmm. so much of this is contingent on developments on the software side of things. Super interesting. All right, that's been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a second half to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my longtime friends, buddies, collaborators, and faculty colleagues, Shane Jensen from the Stats Department, Eric Bradlow from the Marketing Department. Audie Winder's out and about. He'll be back. You guys can be in here, too. Give us a shout, one eight four four wharton that's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six or email us businessradio at cirrusxm.com businessradio at cirrusxm.com or hit us up on Twitter at wmoneyball is our handle there at wmoneyball great way to stay on top of the world of sports analytics just off the phone with Second Spectrum talking technology changes in the world of sports super interesting those guys are right in the middle of it especially with basketball and soccer in this half hour going to talk. Strength and conditioning, sports science, with one of the leading practitioners in the field. Andrea Hoody is joining us. Andrea is in her first year as head basketball strength and conditioning coach for the men's and women's team, I believe, at the University of Texas. Andrea, good morning to you, and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Where are you calling from this morning? Austin, Texas. All right. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Well, let me give you just let me give our listeners just a little bit more background on you. Andrea is her fir- in her first year there in Austin after spending 15 years 
in Lawrence, Kansas, with the University of Kansas men's basketball team. During those 15 years, how many times, Eric Bradlow, do you think they made the NCAA playoffs? Kansas? Oh, all 15. All 15 of them. All 15 of them. Oh, and by the way, before she was at Kansas, Andrea was with a little program that plays a little basketball in in Northeast Connecticut, UConn, men's and women's basketball teams where she also picked up a couple of national championships. It's ridic- Your career is ridiculous, Andrea. Is that okay to say? Uh, I've been um, surrounded by uh, some pretty successful coaches and some pretty talented athletes. So mm-hmm. I've been fortunate and I'm grateful to uh, have been around those people. So can you tell us how you got going? You you come from Pennsylvania, come from the shadow of, of Penn State. How did how did Penn State lose you? I believe you played volleyball for Maryland. Is that right? And how did yeah, you get from I, that? I wasn't, I wasn't good enough to play Penn State volleyball. All right. So uh, I went to the University of Maryland where um, I was, you know, in into sports and into training. And Frank Costello, who was a high jump coach uh, at the University of Maryland, became one of the first strength coaches there. And he really got me interested in studying the stretch shortening cycle and vertical jump. The shortening cycle. Talk, talk to us about shortening cycle. Uh, okay. Yeah. You, we're, we're, we're novices in this world. We're, we're, we need to learn from you. What's the shortening cycle? Uh, the stretch shortening cycle is, you know, a simple example is if you put your hand on the desk and uh, you put all five fingers down on the desk and you just, without touching anything, you pick up your middle finger and you hit it to the, to the desk. Or, on the other hand, you can take your other hand and pick up that middle finger and then it slams to the, uh, to the desk with a lot more force. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the stretch shortening cycle. That's kind of the easiest way I can explain it. But the stretch shortening cycle is pretty much how we move and how we do everything in, um, in movement and human function. Mm-hmm. So he, Costello gets you interested in this area and you start studying it directly in school as soon as you leave school? Was that kind of your first exposure? Would that have been the first exposure to kind of quote-unquote sports science? Probably the first formal um, exposure to training in sports science, for sure. Um, Again, Frank was a a pretty good high jumps coach and track and field coach, and he was my strength and conditioning coach. And I was a shorter volleyball player, so – uh, power production was pretty important to me as a shorter player because I had to jump high. And then just the vertical jump is something that changes from rep to rep, let alone day to day, week to week. And um, it's pretty inconsistent if you are inconsistent as a human being. So I started studying that in college. And uh, we started using force plates in undergrad, and then I used force plates in graduate school and continuing to use the force plate technology today in my career. So, Andrea, pardon us for being so rudimentary, but you keep on saying these fascinating things. We need to hear a little bit more about it. So we of all the physical actions I could have imagined, you know, in terms of actually, you know, sports moves, I would have thought vertical jump would be pretty repeatable and pretty consistent and you're saying it's not so can can, what what is it that moves that around well you know i think you got to put it in a context of the force plate measures a thousand hertz per second Mm -hmm. so um in in that case it's not repeatable because of just uh degrees of freedom and motor learning and all these things um so it is repeatable but it's not on the on the grand scheme of things so every rep is different mm-hmm. it's like a golf swing every golf swing that you take is different do and so in golf it's because it's relatively static and you the golfer initiates the action we think about repeatability 
you know, it's so fundamental to the swing. Is it the case that even in basketball, that the, that and and maybe away from the free throw line, even in these non free throw line moves in basketball, you're you think it's important to emphasize the repeatability of the motions? Yeah, um, the degrees of freedom is is enormous. Like you can't even really measure that really because every every skill that you do or every movement that you do is 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 original. So um, yeah, I, I think it, helping athletes to understand the consistency of human behaviors and the consistency of human movement is really really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Andrea, this is Eric Brother. I want to ask you, of the three major things, at least from my perspective, maybe they're rudimentary to think about, which of the ones is most is least variable and which of the one can you influence the most? Let's call it speed, mm-hmm. jumping ability, or strength. Which of those, let's imagine those are the three major dimensions. And I apologize, there may be five <laughs> other dimensions. But let, just as a novice, I would say, I want you to be faster, <laughs> jump more, and be stronger. If Are those, well, A, what are the major dimensions? Two, which ones are the most consistent? And third, which one can you influence the most well, yeah, as which a strength ones are and the conditioning most malleable. Coast? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, can you repeat the questions one more time? I'm All right, let me go one at a time. Time. What are All the right. major, like I, I call them speed, jumping ability, and strength, but what are the major dimensions someone that actually studies this thinks about the dimensions of someone's strength, ability, et cetera? So I think strength being such a slow movement is uh, very repeatable on a day-to-day basis. Um, I would think speed would be next and vertical jump would be uh, third. Uh, just when you look at velocities of movements and rates of force development, those things can change. So uh, strength for sure can be repeated on a day-to-day basis. We looked at that uh Dr. Kramer, William Kramer, looked at that with Penn State Volleyball where um, power output can, could not be repeated on a day-to-day basis just because fatigue and, um, you know, so many different factors. Mm-hmm. Andrew, which of those is, is most malleable in the players you work with? Do you, do you find you can, you can develop one of those dimensions more than the other dimension, just in general? Getting a player faster, getting a player stronger, getting a, improving well, a player's jumping ability? When you look at long-term athletic development, um, and we'll speak in terms of male athletes, um, we usually get them when they're about 18 years old, and the window of opportunity for those athletes uh, is strength. So what type of strength, you know, are we looking at? And for for basketball, we're looking at reactive strength. So um, there are windows of opportunity of development, and I think strength is one of the biggest ones at that point. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is reactive strength, Andrea? Um, it's uh, the ability to to develop force quickly and uh, go from eccentric to concentric muscle contraction. Mm-hmm. Um, just basically overcoming gravity to absorb against gravity and overcome against gravity. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's very similar to agility. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So did, did you know how much has changed since you've been in the field? The the traditional model to the layperson of strength and conditioning is you know it's all the stuff that we did when we were in you know high school athletics or whatever you're just you're, you know you're doing bench press you're doing squats you're just trying to get strong in some basic way mm-hmm. and it feels like from a distance again the field has really moved towards more functional strength and yeah I think it depends on who you're talking to um, you know you still find those programs that have traditional strength training programs. Um, and then you, you, you find people that are looking at data and looking at what you're calling functional strength. Um, I think there's, there is a pretty big um, 
divide in the industry in terms of who's collecting data, who's looking at data, who's analyzing it. Really? Um, yeah, because there's a lot of people collecting data, too, and they're not analyzing it. So right. It, it depends on where you're looking and, you know, what's going on, especially in college athletics. So it, the where do you think the source of the – is the divide within the strength and conditioning community as well, or does it sit more with the coaches – who might supervise SNC, and or does the divide set both of these places? I, I would say both. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I think. I, again, I was fortunate to be around growth mindset people, um, really big time researchers in uh, sports performance and strength and conditioning, and um, myself. I have a growth mindset too, so I, I know that there's always room to grow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So talk- it depends on where you are. Well, we're talking to Andrea Hoodie. She is in her first year at the University of Texas as the head basketball strength and conditioning coach after 15 seasons at the Kansas basketball program and before that, UConn. Andrea, what what is it that you, you're kind of starting from scratch down there in your first year after having 15 years in the previous place? That's a presumably it's an interesting time to think about how do I want to, you know, what have I learned? What do I, what would I do differently? What do I emphasize as I go into this program for the first time? Can you share any of your thinking along those lines with us? Kind of the wisdom you accrued over 15 years that you get to put into place from scratch as you move into a new position? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, my time at, at Kansas was, uh, one of growth too. It didn't start out the way that it ended. Right. So it ended in a really cool place. I used to call it Disneyland. Um, oh, really? okay. in, in terms of going to work and, and having great people to work with and great technologies and great support. Um, and that same thing has happened here at the University of Texas, where I've been, um, you know, given the resources to provide the same technologies in the same place where I left off at Kansas. But yet, I think we're taking another step forward here. Uh, Kirk Goldsberry's here, and we're collaborating with him on some in-game data and what we're doing in terms of uh, in the weight room with performance training too. So hopefully we're going to go next level here. That's and, ex- um, that's exciting. Yeah. Kirk Kirk is obviously he's been at the front of the the use of motion tracking data as basketball analytics for a while. He's, he's he put himself in Austin and and uh, delighted to hear that you guys are working together. Is it is it the case that you have responsibility for both the men's side and the ladies side, or is there more interest on one side or the other in what you have to offer? Well, I'm responsible for both, and every decision that I make will affect both programs. Um, I primarily am hands-on and practicing with the men, but I I do oversee the staff for the women. Mm -hmm. Andrew, you talk about the technology and the science and the data. Is there, do you experience a tension in needing to learn as you go along and yet also needing to develop these players or rehab these players? How do you balance the tension between maximizing what they have based on what you know now versus experimenting to some extent in order to know more down the road? Yeah, I think um, always putting their health uh, first is is a primary goal, Um, and then helping them and educating them in terms of consistency of force production and consistency of uh, rehab or whatever, nutrition, sleep, all those consistencies in life and educating them. But um, I think, yeah, I do feel a pressure in terms of wanting to be – you know, at the top of what we do and the top of what we feel in our field and push the edge in terms of what people are doing, for sure. We've been through the Eagles facility a few times. You talk to those guys, and um, 
I mean, it, it just feels like this is fundamental. The, the, one of the must be one of the challenges of trying to be cutting edge and scientifically based that you you want to collect data, but you need to, but you don't want to vary from what you know. I mean, there, you've got guys in season. You, can you really deviate at all from what you know in order to gain? You know, some knowledge is going to help down the road, but yeah, I think you want to be careful with that, right? Because you mm-hmm. don't want to throw it too off the, um, you know, the ledge. But um, we, we, I, when I was um, studying at the University of Kansas, we looked at uh, how we can affect power production with partial range of motion and increasing that rate of force development in some of the athletes that needed to get stronger quicker to be able to put them on the court. And uh, we saw with the Sparta technology that we could actually manipulate somebody's rate of force development with partial range of motion things. So, you know, we're learning as we go, but you don't want to go so far off, you know, the Mm -hmm. edge that somebody gets hurt or Mm -hmm. or changes the program completely, you know. Mm -hmm. Andrea, um, you're obviously mostly working with athletes at kind of the early stages of their athletic career. and, and, And there's probably a lot of fascinating sports science involved with that. I'm also fascinated by kind of the other end of the spectrum, like athletes at the tail end of their career, players like, you know, Tom Brady or, or Roger Federer, who, and there's clearly a lot of really interesting sports science and training going on there. How different do you kind of think that the sort of science and best practices are for athletes kind of at the end of their career versus at the beginning? Yeah, I think um, with those guys, health is pretty important because they're probably so skilled and understand the game so well that um, I don't know if increasing power or strength at that point is important. Uh, You look at mobility and um, different things like that. So I always look at it as um, those shorter-term athletic development like gymnastics by the time we would get them in college, man, they're at the end of their career. So what do you do with those people? You just try to fine-tune every other aspect of their life, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure Tom Brady and Federer are still, you know, working out and taking it to the edge, but they probably have the routines pretty set. Mm-hmm. Sandra, so uh, a question we were talking about earlier in the show had to do with rest, and let's even talk about basketball right now. So let's imagine there were never back-to-back games, let's say whether it's in college basketball or in sports. How would that actually impact you know, people's ability to recover? How, or in other words, how stressful is it for athletes at this level to compete multiple days in a row? Yeah, you know what? Um, the, the, uh, something new that I've been able to do here with working with Coach Smart is periodizing practice with our catapult data. So um, this is the first time in my career, my 25-year career, that I'm able to uh, have an impact on on how much movement and how long practice is going. So um, I, I feel like, you know, uh, we could gain an advantage with uh, how we're periodizing practice and what we're doing with our sports science department here. Andrew, can you talk a little bit more about that? What What way might practice look different with your involvement based on the catapult stuff? Uh, that would be time and intensity, really. How, 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 what days we have off, how long we're practicing, how intense we're practicing. Um, yeah, we look at these what we call load factors with with practice, and, and we manipulate those on a daily basis. Andrea, this is such a hot topic right now. People are worked up about load management. The sports scientists love it. The analysts, we've, we're inclined to love it. A lot of folks are whinging about it now. Some of the old time basketball players think it's weak. 
where are you on on load management? And and here is there ever an example of it's not always just taking load off of people, right? It's spreading it out, and some guys yeah, actually need to get more work. On. So can yeah. you talk a little bit more about the whole load management debate? Um, yeah, well, again, this is the first time in my 25-year career, almost 26, that I'm able to do this. So uh, I'm pretty excited about it. We're off to our best start in, in some years here. Um, it, it seems to be working. And then, you know, for the guys that, you know, what's interesting is with the catapult data and the Sparta data and the elite form data, we're looking at it. You can tell who's going to be successful just based on um, their strength per body weight. So you have to be strong to be able to uh, move well in basketball. So we're we're looking at those and and manipulating a lot of the, that data to. If somebody's not hitting their loads in practice, they'll stay a little bit longer and practice more or practice mm-hmm. more intensely or get more reps. And mm-hmm. if somebody's way ahead of somebody else in practice, we'll just pull them off to the side and do some mobility work or something like that. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a goal for each practice, and, and Coach Smart has been just unbelievable to work with in terms of uh, manipulating that, and so far we've been successful with it. Mm-hmm. Is that, has, has the culture changed enough in sports these days that it's okay to differentiate players you know again going back 30 40 years when we grew up everybody wanted to be i mean the coaches wanted to treat everybody the same that was part of the ethic and now everybody's getting idiosyncratic work plans essentially is that is that how do the athletes receive that you have to everybody's different everybody's got a different body type everybody has different strength levels everybody has different emotional needs or issues um you know, different stresses. So I think you have to, and and we do. And I, I think it's awesome that Coach Smart is uh, allowing us to have an in, influence on that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. as long as they're mature enough to deal with it, um, then then let's just keep going forward with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of conversation historically in strength and conditioning has been around injury prevention. And people feel like that's a frontier where if, I mean, it's hard to make progress there, but if we can make progress there, it would make a big difference. Where do you think things are with that these days? Um, I can only speak to really what we're doing here. Um, And I would tell you, uh, I've had seven knee surgeries and need a third shoulder surgery. So the last thing that I ever want my athletes to be is, is injured. I want them to learn from my mistakes and understand that more isn't better harder isn't better uh smarter is better Mm -hmm. and um i I think you know knock on wood i've had a pretty good track record of uh athlete uh injury management and and um performance enhancement so the last thing that i ever want to do is put an athlete in a position to ever get injured Wait, can you can you give us because it's such a we, we need more of these examples. Can you give us an example of an injury type that has been reduced because of better science or better training or advanced techniques? So, for example, as a, as you know, hamstrings probably have come down some, but it feels like some people argue you soft tissue injuries are more preventable. And so these hamstring injuries are actually a, a problem of training. That just as an example, in your experience, is there an example of an injury category that has been reduced because of? Because of I, for us, I, I would um, you know hopefully we're not going to jinx ourselves here, but for us, I would say basketball players tend to have really stiff feet and lower legs because there's so much breaking involved. Mm-hmm. 
in that, that I call it the S-curve, where their feet are tight, their calves are tight, their mm-hmm. quads are tight, their hip flexors are tight. Mm-hmm. And if we can release those things in these high-level basketball players or high-level athletes, we can reduce the um, non-contact injuries like uh, stress fractures in the foot, stress fractures in the lower leg. I think sometimes if there's, they're so tight and there's not this healthy movement within the bones and muscles and tendons, that there tends to be an overuse and then stress reactions and things come up. So um, stronger isn't always better either. So it's like, can you move? Because there's a lot of people that are so strong and they can't move. Mm -hmm. So we have to have this healthy mobility. So I I would tell you that we've been able to decrease the amount of stress fractures in the feet and lower leg and non-contact ACLs and hip labral tears just by um, trying to create mobility. Mm-hmm. And it's and it may be a little bit of backing off the strength training, but it's more about increasing mobility. Yes, and I think that would be what you're calling functional strength, mm-hmm. possibly, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, so not so much like some of our best athletes, they don't need to strength train any any more than you know what they need to because I feel like they're strong enough. They have enough strength per pound of body weight, and they're moving really well. Maybe they just need to do extra movement sessions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're talking to Andrea Hootie. Andrea is in her first year as head basketball strength and conditioning coach at the University of Texas in charge of both the men's and women's programs down there. After 15 years at the University of Kansas basketball and before that, UConn. Andrea, can you talk a little bit about being a woman working with male teams? It feels like it's relatively uncommon. I say that having also walked through the bowels of the Sacramento Kings facility a few weeks ago and running into Tina Murray, who I think is a buddy of yours, and asking yeah. her about, oh, here, here's another high-profile woman as essentially the strength and conditioning or you know, sports performance person for a men's basketball team. Yeah, I tell you, we, we've been really fortunate to be around people that um, realizes the value in what women have to say in, in, in terms of performance and have given us an opportunity to um, showcase our talents. And, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, that's the first thing people see when you walk into a room is that you're a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there have been some pros to that and there have been some cons to that. And I think everybody, no matter if they're a male or female, has their own things that they have to battle. So, you know, that's just one easy battle that, uh, well, not easy, but one battle that I know that I have to fight and, and continue to fight. So we can make too much of those differences, or sometimes we can we can kind of smear across real differences. Are there, are there any, do you think, which is more true here? Is it really that things are the same, that once you get past the, 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 the superficial difference that you're going to go about things the same? Or are there fundamental differences in the way you work with men's players or the, the way you're received from men's players with men. I just think it's coach. I look at it, even when I deal with male or female athletes, it's athlete, you know, and I'm coach. That's it. Mm-hmm. It's very binary. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think as long as I have something to teach somebody, they're willing to learn. I always say that the weight room is my classroom. You know, we don't get, we don't get um, wins and losses in here. We get results. Mm-hmm. And um, if somebody's willing to learn and they're mature enough to learn and they want to learn and have a growth mindset, we'll get along really well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Andrea, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a longtime Longhorn, so I'm, I love the hire. It was very exciting to see that they got you. How did they get you? How did they get you away from the University of Kansas? What is it that you're hoping to get to accomplish down there at UT? Well, again, I think working with Kirk and the administration here, um, they're opening up the new Moody Center. It's a $130 million center. 
Um, there's some great opportunities here uh, for growth and for pushing um, our field and what we do. Uh, Kirk's, you know, he, he's he's a he's a thought provoker, and mm-hmm. and the administration and everybody and Coach Smart, they've all been supportive of, of us working with him and trying to push the edge of what college athletics looks like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. So la- last question for you: where where are you? Where are you noodling intellectually these days? What questions do you have? What frontier are you trying to push in your understanding of your field? Um, I, I, I think, you know, looking at everything that affects force production, like if we just look at it as, as, a, as humans as robots, what really makes that, that person special, I think, and, and how do they function in their behaviors? Because, you, again, you look at force production and what affects force production, you look at emotional stress, mental stress, everything you do, the brain, you know, is, is in control. So nutrition, how does nutrition affect force production? If we can centralize all that data and all those things that we're looking at in terms of college behavior, college athlete behaviors, what can we do to put that in one spot and really um, uh, have positive outcomes with that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Andrew, I said that was the last question, but the way you answered it raised another question for me. If you were, if you, what do you think it would look like if you had a strength and conditioning class for non-athletes? Because a lot of what you've talked about in the last half hour sound like life things and patterns and behaviors and, and consistencies. Yeah, that's great. Um, I would tell you that I feel like I've been successful as um, a teacher in here as a life skills teacher, not necessarily just the strength and conditioning coach because we're teaching a lot more than just lifting weights. I, mm-hmm. I always say the last thing that we do is, is teach weightlifting. Oh, wow. So I don't think any kind of uh, class would be any different than what we do with our athletes because, mm-hmm. again, we're just trying to push the edge of performance in, in, in whether that's life or, or sport. What, what, life skill, what life skills do you think the average non-athlete, the average adult floating around the United States could most benefit from? And for the kind of thing you teach your kids, but actually might be just as applicable to the average U.S. adult. I would say uh, moving with intention. You know, you, you, you look at people on treadmills and they're just running and you look at people, I don't know, just varying movements maybe varying the intention of what you're trying to do because strength and mobility are so important, especially as we get older. And and those are lifetime skills. Terrific. Really, really interesting. Andrea, thank you again for taking the time to be with us, and we really wish you the best with your work there in Austin, Texas. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Andrea Hootie, first-year head basketball strength and conditioning coach down at UT has both the men's and women's programs there. 15 years with the University of Kansas basketball team. Before that, University of Connecticut. Highly lauded, highly lauded in her field of strength and conditioning. Andrea Hootie. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. 
Dion Simpkins, associate producer, bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour on the soundboard. Always a delight to be working with Mr. Simpkins. Just off the phone with Andrea Hootie, head strength and conditioning coach, basketball coach down at the University of Texas, one of the most decorated strength and conditioning coaches out there anywhere, 15 years with the University of Kansas, during which the University of Kansas men's team made the NCAA playoffs every year before that UConn. What did you guys make of that conversation? Well, I try to think of it as um, I actually think you do get wins and losses in strength and conditioning. And I don't just mean because of performance. I think it's the topic to me of uh, injuries. Mm -hmm. You know, I always think about it. Let's say you have a a sports program with 20 players, and let's multiply it by two for men's and women's. That's 40 players. Let's say you could reduce injury by 5 to 10%, which doesn't seem implausible to me as a possible effect size. Well, that's two to four players a year that are not potentially going to get injured as a result of strength and conditioning training. So I just think of it as, you know, you now maximize the opportunity to have your best players on the court or on the field in a given sport. So yeah, to me, yeah, I, think, I, I, I think wins and losses can be there. No, it's true. I just, you know, it, it, ma- it makes it that much harder to kind of, I think, exp- identify best practices or, or right. kind of identify good, good changes because you're affecting kind of like, you know, the underlying rates of relatively rare events anyway. And and so, you know, you can have a, it, it, the kind of distinction between process and outcome is, is, is you know, kind of stark in that, in, the, in that kind of scenario. And so as far as trying to measure like, oh, this particular best strength training practice, you know, we had one less injury last year or something like right. that, you, you – there's a lot, there's a real sample size issue with that. Well, these guys are always process oriented, right? Yeah. The, 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 exactly. The, the trainers and the S and C folks are always process, 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 and the best ones even more so. Really interesting. I think it was a real privilege to talk to someone, someone who's practicing. She's calling from the office. She's going to go. Yeah. You know, she's probably been with players already. She's going to go back to players, and she's got a chance to to build a, a a program kind of from scratch as she starts out at UT down there. Andrea Hootie. By the way, we didn't we didn't pitch her uh, Twitter handle. It's at a underscore hoodie h-u-d-y at a underscore hoodie h-u-d-y guys we've got some football to talk about obviously big big kind of moments in football but before we do that let's check through a few other fields hockey anything going on in hockey well it you know about a third of the nfl season's over and this is when i maybe a little more than a third this is when i nhl nhl sorry nhl and this is when i pick my head in and start to peek at you know what's going on in hockey and actually so I, this is a more of a question for Shane here. So we have a team that appear that's all, pretty much on an all time pace this year. So we have the Boston, three losses. Yeah. yeah. So we have the Boston Bruins who have twenty wins, three losses. Wow. But five overtime losses. Yeah. But they've got forty five points in twenty eight games. Now that puts them on pace for hundred and twenty nine points for the season. You know the record as well as I do. The seventy six Canadians, I believe, one hundred and thirty two points. Yeah. So forget whether they're going to get there. Like. How, like, is this just, well, every year there's going to be some team that's somewhat outlying, or are we talking about a team that has the potential to be? No, I, I mean, be... I, I, it's, a, it's a great question because, I mean, normally I would sort of say, well, yeah, every year there's going to be some team that's outlying. And they'll revert and, back, and, and, and they'll end up with 120 and, points. And, and so... I do think they probably will revert back, though they are a very talented team. I do not think that they are at the, you know, that they will be able to sustain this pace. That said... <laughs> Just last season, we had a team that basically did sustain a, a close to historical pace. That was the, the entire Lightning, season, right? the, the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, Who, by the way, got eliminated? I forget if it was in the first, first round, round or the second. Yeah, well, I mean, let's let's all acknowledge that none of this will matter come playoff time. You know, <laughs> because the playoffs in hockey are especially random. But yeah, no, I mean, so 
I think it's kind of interesting that we kind of, at least over the last couple of seasons, I'm probably reading too much into it myself, that we have had these kind of super teams that are on a crazy pace. And if we, and if Boston wasn't at three losses, we would be talking about the Washington Capitals, which I think have four or five losses That's correct. on the season. So we have a couple teams right now that are at these kind of, you know, relatively historical the only paces. Other, the only other thing I looked at for hockey was, um, if we forget just wins and losses, their goal differential is 50% greater than the second yeah. best. So I was just trying to see how much are they exceeding the yeah. second best team, which yeah. is the Capitals, by the way. They're at 36. The other ones are 24. So that's the other metric I was saying. Like, let's not just look at wins and losses. Look look at other metrics. Got it. All right. So I'm sad for my uh, my boy Kyle Dubas in, in, with Toronto because they keep on not being able to get through the Bruins. And so yeah. if the Bruins are even better than they have been, it's going to be a harder road no, for no, the Leafs. It's, uh, yeah, the nightmare scenario for the Maple Leafs is to have to face the Bruins sometime in the playoffs. <laughs> almost as bad as the uh, Twins facing the Yankees. The, almost as bad. Almost not quite as, bad. as guaranteed, but close. Golf and tennis. Anything going on in golf and tennis? Well, so, you know, it's a big, you know, golf, the season's starting to pick up again. You know, Tiger's playing this week in his Hero World Challenge, and they got the President's Cup. And so it started to make me think about the all-time greats in these sports and who has the best chance to kind of end up on top. And here's what I mean. So right now we have Federer's got 20 majors, Nadal's got 19, and Djokovic has got 16. I think we all agree, actually, Nadal is likely to pass Federer because Nadal may win the French for 18 more years. So that'll get him 37 majors. (laughs) Now, my question is, Djokovic, he needs to win five more to pass Federer. Yeah. Let's say he's not as freaky as Federer, and he's not going to play till age 38 or 39. Let's say he plays to 36, so he's got 16 more majors. Will he win five of the next 16? I was thinking of Serena Williams. She's one short of Margaret Court. She's been one short of Margaret Court for over two years. Yeah. Let's say she can play for two more years. She has to win two out of eight. We have Tiger Woods, who's now got 15 majors. Jack Nicklaus has got 18. But let's say Tiger, because you can play golf for longer, let's say he can be competitive for 10 more years. Who would you take your bets on right now? Will Djokovic win 5 of 16 to pass Federer? Will Serena win 2 of 8 to pass Margaret Court? Or will Tiger win 4 of 40 to pass Jack Nicklaus? Who would you take your bets on you right now? You have to take one because no one wants – I don't want any of them. Right. I'm guessing right. nobody wants to take, any of them. You have to take – well, a lot of people might say Djokovic could be – he's – I don't know. But either way, which would you pick? Remember. Probably Djokovic. I'd certainly not Tiger. I th- I'm leaning Serena, actually. I'm leaning Serena. Two of eight, I, you said? Yeah, by the way, I, I'm just making up that she's yeah. only going to play competitive for two more years. Yeah. It could be longer than that. By the way, I think someone can speak in our ears. I think she's lost. I know it's at least four. She's lost four or five consecutive major finals, mm-hmm. by the way. So she's made the finals. Yeah, yeah. She just hasn't won them. Right. Yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm thinking I'm, I'm going to take Serena in this bet. Only because of Lads, you just absor- she's still there every time, basically. And I, I'm going with uh, Djokovic. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. going with Djokovic. And about Tiger, do you I mean, think Tiger's going to get any more majors? What's what's your over under for his number of majors? I would say I think the answer is yes. I I'm going to say 1.5. Yeah. I think the over under is 1.5. I think he could get to 17. Why? Well, you know, again, I think he can play competitively, assuming he's healthy, for 10 more years. There's no reason why you couldn't be a 50. I, I saw Tom Watson. Yeah blow a seven-foot putt to win the British oh, Open at age 59. Yeah. And so, you know, I remember Jack Nicklaus at age 53 was two back at the Masters. I mean, Eric, yeah. do you think, do you think the, the guys' games differently depend on their physical condition? I mean, we think about Woods as being such an athletic golfer. Watson, we never thought of that way. 
And so if that is that true, and might that make it easier, or is it, is it exactly the opposite? Is it easier for Watson to be competitive at 59 because he never depended on his body in quite the same way that Tiger Woods does? Yeah, I mean, I think that with Tom Watson, Tom Watson was never the long driver of the golf ball. His strength of his play was always his iron play. Matter of fact, if you ask most golfers who are the top five iron play golfers of all time, Tom Watson would be in that list. I think people thought he had the yips in putting. He wasn't that great a putter. He wasn't that great a driver of the golf ball. It was his iron play. And that kind of, you know, he still needs to be a great iron player. I think Tiger Woods, I think the challenge he's going to face going forward is, you know, five years from now when he's hitting it 280 off the tee and Brooks Kepka's hitting it 320 off the tee and Brooks Kepka's hitting an eight iron into the green and Tiger's hitting a six iron into the same green, you know, what's the, you know, at the end of the day, the stat that I've started following in golf is, Distance from the hole on the green. Who's got the, sh- you know, at the end of the day, they're all going to be there roughly in regulation most of the time. Is Tiger trying to hit 30 foot putts because he's hit a six yeah. iron to the green and is Kepka hitting a 15 foot putt because he's hitting an eight iron to the that, green? That, that's interesting. You know, we, we talk about these, every sport we should add these like simple, like if you, it's not a sufficient statistic, but the closest thing to a sufficient statistic yeah. you might get. So in football, Selfino always pimps um, yards per pass attempt. Mm hmm. Not bad. So you, if you could get play success rate, you'd rather have that. But YPA is really good. That's a real good simple number to capture, get a sense of how a team's doing. Uh, Eric, you're saying for, for golf, it's holes, distance to the pin on approach shot. Correct. It is That's because, nice. That's nice. At the, well, first of all, it combines your driving and your iron play. Mm-hmm. So it does mm-hmm. that. And secondly, at the end of the day, um, you're, you know, if you're hitting 30-foot putts and I'm hitting 15-foot putts, I think that delta is so large yeah. that it doesn't matter whether you're the number one putter and I'm the number 15 putter well, I'll go st- or 50 yeah, the, putter. The very, I'll take the 50th yeah. putter from 15 yeah, sure. feet, and you can that's be the right. best putter from 30. Yeah. Well, that's actually a really interesting question. Like, what is the trade-off? Correct. Yeah. Could, let's look at the, the trade-off. variance putting, putting uh, across people at a particular distance versus, like, the drop-off by distance. Yeah, that, let's see that stat. Let's see that stat. That's great. Yeah. Oh, okay. So we've, we haven't even talked about college football. It's, college, it's conference championship weekend. We're one what half a week away from the playoffs being seated finally after all the conversation for all these mm-hmm. months and we haven't said a word about it yeah. on the show today so what are you guys thinking about the playoff and the weekend i was i was thinking about so this is not really kind of looking forward this is looking back to like week three or four when eric and i i think we should go back to the tapes but we were basically i think both arguing just the inevitability of you know the four teams that would be in this college football playoff, and Cade, as he always does, wisely was saying, "No, you don't know what's going to happen." Um, and you know, just kind of looking up at that board and not seeing Alabama anywhere near it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it, that, it, it really big, does. That is a big story. That's a big story for the year. It is. Um, and I mean, I mean, I kind of like. I don't want to take this conversation immediately to the NFL, but it makes me kind of think. You know, Baltimore Ravens look absolutely unstoppable, but they yeah, are you, one injury away no, yeah, from but, being stopped. Plus, the unstoppable gets stopped all the yeah, time. Yeah, that's mean, right. Yeah, and with me, it's just, you know, it's back to I wish there were an 18 playoff because, you know, I see Georgia, if they beat LSU, I think they're definitely going. I think, um, you know, we have Utah, who can make a legitimate argument for deserving to go. I think the Oklahoma-Baylor winner can make a legitimate sure, argument to want sure, to go to the playoffs. Sure. And... Um, I just don't see, you know, again, I wish all those teams had an opportunity this year. And, uh, you know, I even say, people say LSU and OSU are locks. Maybe. Let's imagine. I mean, it's not impossible. I don't think it's going to happen. It's not impossible for Georgia. Yeah, Georgia could win. Not only could they win, but they could beat them by 14 points. 
Yeah, they're not going to knock them out, though. LSU's in. There's no point in arguing about that. LSU's going to win, come in there. Ohio State's going to come in there. That's just happening. I just think there's no question. That's okay, well, if those two are definitely in, then, you know, obviously, if, you know, do you think, who do you think is going to win the LSU-Georgia game? LSU was the seven point favorite, six point favorite. So I think they'll win. But that's, that's, I mean, that's. And obviously, in your not mind, that I think everybody's mind, that'll knock Georgia out. So Georgia's out. Clemson's going to beat Virginia. So they're yes. going to win that game. So those three are in. So then it's the, who do you think, who do you have predicting then between the Utah, Oklahoma, Baylor winner? Well, uh, Oklahoma should beat Baylor. That's a, gosh, that's a double digit line. I think it's a 10, 10 point line or yep. bigger. Um, I think uh, I think Oklahoma probably has the edge, but hold on. I, I think Oklahoma line is shorter than the I think the 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 um, the Utah Washington line or Utah Oregon line is longer, and so actually, so this is the deal about this. So if you look at their rankings, the playoff committee seems to like Baylor a lot more than Oregon because they're like number seven versus Oregon being thirteen. Right. So according to the committee. Oklahoma's win would be more impressive than Utah's win would be. According to the market, that's not the case. And the market says Oregon is like a, a eight point, a six point underdog, so they're a tougher game. Baylor's like an eight point underdog, so the market says it's not as impressive. That the committee seems to be indicating they think a win over Baylor would be more impressive. So I think Oklahoma probably has a little bit of an edge, and in our model, they do have a bit of an edge. Um, but that, tell you what, it's a beauty pageant. This is the what we have here. We have five Power Five conference championships, but what we really have is two beauty pageants. One is the one we're talking about, Oklahoma versus Utah. That's a full-on beauty pageant. Now, look, Oregon could win, Baylor could win, but just take the favorites and assume they'll win and say that's a it's, right. a, it's a beauty pageant between them on who's going to be that fourth spot. The other beauty pageant, really important, is LSU versus Ohio State for the number one seed mm-hmm. because the number one seed is going to get that Oklahoma. Yeah. Utah, Baylor, and not Clemson, OSU, and not Clemson, and not Clemson. And so you you put Ohio State, LSU, and Clemson together, and just you know throw a dart. Those teams are essentially head up, but there's one of these things is not like the other. Yeah. The number one seed gets a that 10, number one seed is going to have a huge they're gonna advantage. Be, they're going to be about a ten point favorite mm-hmm. in that first round yeah. versus a toss, toss up. up. Yeah, and so you take a team from being you talk about the the two three seeds are going to be like twenty five percent chance to win the championship. The number one seed, who's the same team, yeah. Is going to be a thirty-seven percent, thirty-eight percent chance to win the championship. Do you think there's? I, I'm not asking if you think this would be done. I'm asking if you think this would be a reasonable way to do it. Let's imagine you had two teams that had the same one loss. Let's say they were both Power Five champions. Do you think there'll ever be a day where someone just says, "Look, we don't want this to be a beauty pageant. We're going to use the ELO ratings, the average of some no. composite set of ratings to make a type." You don't think no. that'll ever happen? Where again, I want to condition on three things. No. Okay, you don't think that'll ever happen. That, when they, that was the old BCS. There was a moment where they gave computers s- say, and they realized pretty quickly they didn't like it. Here's a better solution, a much more okay. elegant solution, because that is a problem. It's a problem that we have two things going on here. We have a beauty pageant. Instead of five championship games, we have two beauty pageants. That's a problem. And we're saying things like, Ohio State can lose and it doesn't matter. LSU can lose, it doesn't matter. I, I think that's a problem. The more elegant solution is to have play-in games, to have basically mm-hmm. positions for 
conference champions. Make them earn it on the field. At some, I mean, look, I'm a power rankings guy, but that doesn't mean I want power rankings to dictate who makes the playoffs. I think conference championships should dictate who makes the playoffs. These games should matter more than they do. Remember what I just said, but I'm not saying I disagree with you. I'm just saying, remember, I'm conditioning on win-loss record and conference championships and them even being power five schools. And I want to use the tiebreaker as I don't want it to be a beauty pageant. I want the power ranking to determine if they have the same record. They both won their conference championship. These guys are never going to cede. They're never going to cede that much authority to an algorithm. Okay. All right. they, they've got their eyes. They've got their judgment. They've got their expertise. They've got their whatever. They're never going to cede it to an algorithm. All right. So that's college football. Going to know a lot more. We're going to have the seeds this time. We're going to have all the bowls this time next Let week. Let me just ask a quick question. Is there any sequence to the games that makes it interesting? Like some of the games are at noon. Some of the games are at 8 p.m. Like I'm just interested in the sequence of the games. Like when I'm making it up. When Baylor and Oklahoma take the field, right. will they know what has happened in the LSU-Georgia game or anything like that? They, I don't know the yeah. order of the games. So Pac-12 is Pac-12 in, in, in their infinite wisdom is they're going to go do something on Friday night. So uh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So they'll know kind of the beauty pageant bar that's been set for that fourth seed. Uh, Oklahoma will know kind of how impressive they need to be. And you know, if Oregon wins, then that's a free. It's kind of a free pass to the to the Big Twelve winner, regardless of who it is. And I mean, unless Wisconsin does something really shocking up in the Big Ten. All right, uh, NFL. Before we get to NFL mat- matchups, just a kind of a survey of the of the land here, fellas. Well, obviously, the thing that caught a lot of people's eye last week was you know the Patriots lost to the Texans. Yeah, and you know th- the Patriots didn't look good. No, and it's forget the final score, which was I think twenty eight twenty two or something like that. The Patriots did not look good in the game. Now the question becomes, how important is the one seed to the Patriots? Because you know, in some sense, you could say they're going to re- they could rest some players. Yeah. How important do you feel that one seed is? I mean, I think the right one, now they're not the one. The, yeah, and I think the the one seed they're certainly not in the driver's seat for that that one seed. I I think the bye is still incredibly important to New England. Well, they, New England and Baltimore have a two game lead on every. The best other record is eight and four in the in the AFC. Yeah, so they're New both England has to still play Kansas City and Buffalo. I mean, New England could. By losing to Kansas City and Buffalo, actually drop from the number two seed down to the number five or six. They could lose the oh, division. No, that, even that we both agree right. would have a huge impact. So, so I mean, the one seed. If if they somehow do, if Baltimore, I, I mean, again, I'm I'm having a hard time imagining Baltimore losing another game. But if if they were to somehow lose another game, the one seed would come back into contention for New England. But right now, it's really about. I think holding on to the. You buy. don't think Baltimore has any chance to lose this week to Buffalo? Oh, they have some chance, you know, but but, not. Uh, but uh, uh, New England has a much greater chance to lose to Kansas City, you know. So I, I really do think Baltimore is very much in the driver's seat for that one. Seat. Let me ask you so, a question. So oh, wait, here, here, I think the the here's a question: Which matters more, the 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 home field advantage or who you have to play? Because um, yeah, I, I mean, if Kansas City ends up with that third spot, I think. You, no right. I, I mean, I think it's in both. What if they end up on the fourth spot? I guess. Well, you, that's right. I I, I do. Th- I think they're going to be three or four likely. Yeah. If they're four, though, okay. If you're the Ravens and the Chiefs are sitting there at four, would you rather? Well, let me just comment. Would you rather on, have the first seed or not? Well, let me comment on something here. The team that gets no love, and they probably deserve no love, is the Texans. The Texans it's have some be- love. I know, but they've beaten the Patriots and Chiefs this season. It's true. And they, they lost. Got, they got pasted by the Ravens. I understand yeah. that, but they barely lost to Seattle. And they beat a good team. A good I know, team. and they beat the Patriots and the Chiefs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they didn't sort of beat them. They're they actually beat they're, them. They are a Southern team that's going to have to go north to play one of those, like to play one of those games. 
and that's not going to go well. Okay, for them. so one of the things you're saying is you're making too much, too much of the difference, difference between, between Kansas City and Texas. I think that's Texas fair. beat Kansas City. I think that's fair. No, I think and I, I, I think home field advantage is is the most important thing. But really, you know, the the no, the buy the, the number two seed is the really the thing that all these teams should be shooting for, New England included, because that just you know it gives you. The bye, and it gives you the opportunity to avoid Baltimore at least until the AFC Championship game. So, guys, we're going to go to NFL, but one quick note from our friend Mark Brody, the the, the godfather of golf analytics. He tweeted in response to our question a moment ago that this, this is the difference: the bottom ten putters on the on the PGA Tour sink more putts than the top ten putters given one foot closer. If they give them a one foot advantage. The top, the worst ten putters are better than the wow. Best so that really, okay. so distance oh, wow. really does <laughs> dominate. I'm, I'm starting to like my stat. Thank <laughs> yeah. you, Mark. I'm starting to like my stat even more and more. That's, that's amazing. That's, that's from Mark. Fantastic. And then, of course, you want to do logically just behind that and say, how much does distance to the green matter yeah, from getting good, close good, to good. the hole? All right, so let's talk about a little bit more NFL. Moneyball matchups. Eric, we're down about three minutes, so walk us through quickly. All right, so Shane, you um, we'll go let you go first because there's so many great games, but you might pick the one that's obvious. Kansas City Chiefs versus New England Patriots, huge game for both playoff seeding as well as understanding which of these teams kind of can get garner a little bit more momentum um, in the face of the Baltimore Ravens dominating so much. I think it's going to be Kansas City, even though it oh, is really? in New oh, England. Wow. I I think New England has. Yet to sort out their massive problems on the offensive line, as well as um, you know, basic well the offense in general. I think the <laughs> they're bigger, not going to be able to outscore. I actually think the bigger concern for the Patriots was the fact that Deshaun Watson put up twenty eight points yeah. on them. That was bigger yeah. concern for me than they lost the game. Yeah. Their defense. I'm not saying he shredded them, but no, they didn't have right. trouble scoring twenty eight points in that game. I agree. That is also worrisome. So, Cade, what game? Do, what's what game are you looking yeah, at this I'm week? Obviously, interested in Baltimore Buffalo. Yeah, but, that's a great um, one. But uh, the one that snuck up on me was San Francisco New Orleans. I, mean, I ah. think that 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 big game in the NFC. That's a three point line. The Saints at home. They're basically saying these guys are kind of even. We think it's more like a five and a half. We like the Saints in this game. Well, what's obviously really important for that? You talk about it. If San Francisco loses that game, which could very well, and Seattle beats the Rams, yeah, they're going to San drop Francisco from- drops. Well, the t- they dropped that the loser. That's the five seed. Yeah. So forget about being the top seed. You're even in the wild card now. Yeah. So yep. that that game is absolutely crucial. Well, and you named another one. The Seattle L.A. Rams game. I think the Rams were. I think people may be sleeping on the Rams a little bit. I agree. I mean, Goff has been such a controversial figure, but man, they looked good this past week. And maybe maybe we dismissed them too quickly. We're going to learn something on that on that game. Yeah. I just I, I just as you guys know, I was at the L.A. Coliseum and I saw the Bucks put up double nickel on the Rams, and I'm thinking that they put up 55, and, and if it had been a better quarterback than Jameis Winston, we would have put up 70. Um, it, they're not a great defensive team. They've got some problems. Uh, again, I'll pick the third game that you guys didn't mention, which you mentioned briefly, which is the Ravens-Bills. Yeah. Yeah. I, keep thinking the, I keep thinking the Bills aren't real until the Bills just keep winning yeah. and keep winning. Sitting there 9-3. and three. And um, I Yeah, think no, I mean, uh, the, nice thing about, the nice thing about that game is uh, e- either result actually helps the New England Patriots. <laughs> that's true. Right. Good for you. Well, yeah. that game's in Buffalo. I'm happy for my friends in Buffalo. That's a that's a fun to have the kind of the kind of the team of the year up there visiting Buffalo. You don't see that game. You don't see the Ravens in Buffalo very often. We're going to find out something about the Bills. This should be a revealing weekend across the board. And you're be being a Buffalo guy at some point in your life. Yeah. You've got to be rooting a little bit for Buffalo in that game. 
Not against my Ravens. I'm not oh, against okay. my Ravens. <laughs> so, guys, thank you. Another two hours here on Wharton Moneyball. Thank you to Matty D, boss man, keeping it on the straight and narrow. Zach Drapkin, assistant producer. Dion Simpkins, associate producer and soundboard engineer today. From Cade Massey, from Shane Jensen, from Eric Bradlow, from In Absentia, Adi Weiner. Thank you for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.